but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. We're here for episode 3 of 2021, or 7th season. I think I finally got that <laughs> yeah. proper uh, perspective there. We complained a lot on the last episode about the, the behavior of certain tennis players who are in quarantine, hard quarantine. And you thought that maybe, perhaps... We were too hard on some of them? Well, I don't know. I'll leave that for listeners to decide. I'm in a different mood for this episode. Last time I chose violence. This time I'm going to choose diplomacy, perhaps. And and maybe some targeted criticism where it's necessary. It's very early in the episode for you to make that declaration. That's some true. violence may be needed. But the the volume and the nature of the complaining has definitely decreased after those first few days in hard quarantine, players seem to have mostly accepted it, even though it sucks, and just got on with it. The natural segue between both episodes, the last one and this one, is Artem Sitek, who released a video right after, on the same day that we recorded our last episode. It would have been very nice had he done it a little bit earlier <laughs> for us. He has become something of a quarantine star. In this early period of the year, he's a, a handsome guy. He's speaking truths, and there's no tennis to be had, so he's got a spotlight. Speaking very matter-of-factly, presenting himself as a tennis player with brain cells—that is a unique occurrence these days. Sometimes, on occasion, uh, I thought. Well, you said I, said you I was going to be nicer. <laughs> to my mind, we've seen a lot of childish behavior from tennis players. It's a lot of wah, 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 me, me, I want, want, want. Mommy, wash my clothes. <laughs> oh, my, is oh, is wow. my good shirt clean? You know, like <laughs> a very, a lot of the opposite of self-reliance mm -hmm. from well, these tennis I, players. I mean, in tennis, we we take teenagers and put them out onto the road and, and throw them into the world when many of them have lived kind of a sheltered life, right? Sure, and then they grow up into adults, full-grown adults, who have the same level of emotional intelligence. Mm. So back to Artem. Yes, after that spate of violence on my part, Artem essentially said, what y'all are out here saying? That we weren't told. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. <laughs> That that was, in fact, false. Yes. He said they were informed that there was a possibility of being put into strict quarantine. If someone on the plane had tested positive or something else had happened, it wasn't out of the realm of possibility, so players shouldn't have been surprised. So what's likely at play here is that folks were not reading correspondences, not showing up for scheduled Zoom meetings, with mm -hmm. organizers of the Australian Open. So pretty much what we expected, what we surmised was the case. Mm -hmm. So who is Artem Sitak? Uh, for, for many people, myself included, this might be the first time you've heard of the gentleman. He is 34 years old. He's from New Zealand, 
by way of Russia. A fun fact, he was one of the people attacked by that rogue sprinkler at Wimbledon a few years ago, sitting beside Barbara Streetseva and running from the sprinkler. But aside from that, he is a five-time titleist in doubles, and he's currently partnering with Federico Dalbanis for this Australian summer. We touched on it a little in the last episode, that it was going to be near impossible for a tournament, a stretch of tournaments of this magnitude with so many people involved coming off without a glitch. The main glitch being nobody testing positive before getting through quarantine. And one of the things that we saw happen was on day seven of quarantine, Paula Badosa, who was on, I guess, IG live with Kostyuk at the start of quarantine, complaining about they weren't told about hard quarantine possibilities and blah, 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 blah. She tested positive for COVID-19. So this is seven days into the quarantine. And a lot of the players were saying, just test us every day and it'll be safe. If we continue to test negative, let us out. And this proved, you know, what we've been talking about for a year now, that you can be positive with COVID and it not show up on a test for several days. You know, how dangerous would it have been if if they loosened the restrictions because players were complaining and this happened? And then somebody who's working on site then transmits it to one of their family members and that's how you have the community outbreak, community spread. I mean, this sounds like we're speaking very basic, rudimentary things to you that you should know. Well, it turns out a lot of people don't don't know, can't see one step ahead, let alone mm. two. And because the nature of the requests from players and in some cases uh, national federations were so bizarre, right? They were so at odds to what we know about the virus yes. now. The, the Spanish Federation, in effect, saying this is too hard for Carlos Alcaraz saying he, he's just a boy, he's a little babe. This is, it's too much to ask of a 17-year-old. Like, what does coronavirus care about that? Yeah, yeah. Where's the science in that? And I see, like, in that situation, it is the Spanish Federation's responsibility to take care of minors who they send abroad. We definitely saw a shift, as you said, in the tone of a lot of the players after the first few days of quarantine in Australia, after they got so much backlash from the Australian media. I mean, they were being painted, rightfully so, in the worst lights. Yeah. They were being mocked. The Australian press went ham on these players complaining, and I'm sure it really whipped up local Australians into anger and resentment that these, you know, People they view as privileged outsiders are coming into the country and complaining about a program that has been very successful in stopping community spread in Australia. Serana Kirstea saying, if I had known that this hard quarantine was a possibility, I wouldn't, I would absolutely would not have even come here for the $100,000. $100,000 is not worth compromising my values. And fine, we, we don't know that, right? We can't possibly know what decision she would have made. Right, but that does not play well. That speaks it to the privilege doesn't. that's perceived. Mm-hmm. So Alizé Cornet and Serana were going back and forth on Twitter. And Alizé actually, a few days later, deleted her tweet after being met with criticism and apologized for it. We and everybody like to uh, sort of play up the drama that always surrounds Cornet. 
But in this instance, I really have to recognize her integrity and, and the maturity it took to delete the tweet and say, you know what, I was emotional. It, this is a tough time. And I, I realize now that I was wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would put all those value judgments onto it, <laughs> but I would acknowledge that it is so much better response than from so many. Yeah, I think, you know, we have to give people a second chance here and recognize when they're attempting to make things right. Some were exhibiting better judgment, uh, a better shifting tone. Others went in the other direction. Bernard Tomic and his girlfriend, Vanessa Sierra, they chose a different route. Yeah, I couldn't recall wh- what the timeline was for this, but this they released this video of uh, Vanessa, is that her name? Mm-hmm. Complaining about uh, doing sort of intimate personal things in front of her boyfriend, which she hasn't done before. Um, that she's saying that she's going to be constipated you know, because she can't <laughs> take a dump in front of her boyfriend. I, you know, I didn't want to talk about it that There's to, no need plainly. to beat her on that bush. And then she goes on to say that one of the hardships of quarantine is that she's unable to wash her hair or have her hair washed, I should say, because she typically has it done twice a week by somebody else. She has it paid <laughs> for and that it's just simply not something that she does herself. Yeah. Those two are too ridiculous for me to even get mad at because it almost feels like parody what they do. We also had the bizarre, curious case of Roberto Bautista Gut. Mm-hmm. This was interesting. Do you remember the name Amit Naur? It came up a few weeks ago because it turned out that Amit had been sort of forced out from CAA, the agency, over an investigation and allegations of sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. And it and, came to light a few weeks ago because it was discovered that Milos Ramic is still working with him. Mm-hmm. Amit also represents other players. Bautista is one of them. Roberto was seen on video saying that quarantine was like being in jail. That's not the first time we've heard that. Well, the first time we heard it or saw it was from Matt Ebden. It could, there could have been others as well. But Matt Ebden released this Instagram image where he is essentially in jail. The words weren't <laughs> said, but you got the picture. Yeah, it's not. A, it's just not a great comparison. Like, your the, confinement only lasts two weeks. I wonder if he placed a call to his lord and savior, Margaret Court, to help him oh, get out dear. of jail in oh, that dear. situation. If there was any swing that she had with the federal government. <laughs> More on that later. Roberto then said, after the video had come out, that he didn't know he was being recorded, and it wasn't an interview that he expected to be sent out to the public. I've seen the argument that we all say things in a different, more free-flowing way in private than we would in public, and that's absolutely true. But the kernels of truth are there regardless. He may have been able to spin it better publicly, but the fact is, this is what he thinks. It sucks for him that he feels betrayed by whoever was responsible for this leaking. And if it is having to do with Amit Nar, all I can say is, you lie down with doggy catch fleas. (laughs) Like, we know who this person is at this point, and you choose to associate with him. So why would you expect anything other than bad things to happen? If, indeed, that is what happened. Trying to protect ourselves here, you know. We also learned, courtesy of Ms. Arena Rodionova, that the players, those players who are complaining about the food, 
in the first few days. Those players all got $100 per day per DMs. You know, I've seen some folks say that it's it's um, specific to Uber Eats, that it's not a carte blanche type thing. Yeah. But the fact is, you still have other options. You have your own pocket, and then you have your per diem. So, like, all this nonsense that you're carrying on with is utter madness. I have heard players say that the $100 doesn't go as far as you'd think, which is a bit surprising. And Putintseva actually insulted the ver- the value of the Australian dollar, mm. <laughs> saying that, wait a second, you're all saying $100,000. It's only Australian dollars, as if it was Monopoly <laughs> money, you know? <laughs> we are out of quarantine now in Australia. The players have been set free. A few of them were incensed, enraged that they weren't being decaged at the time that they felt they should have been. Well, they added an extra day for some people. Like for some, it, some people were really in there for 15 days mm-hmm. and they weren't ready for that. And then you see players sort of huddled by their door waiting to be yeah. exhumed. Like some of that stuff is actually funny at that point. What was not right? funny was Tennis Sandgren. Oh my lord. And the complete horror show that that video was that he released. It's it's alarming. It just gets more and more grotesque. It it, it was a lot to take in and I just wish that uh he can be vanquished from the <laughs> <laughs> the Australian tournaments in quick time. The Adelaide situation, one of the the wrinkles to this quarantine situation is that there were a bunch of players who were given different accommodations in a different locale. These eight players who were chosen to perform in an exhibition in Adelaide, their their quarantine setup was separate and apart from the Melbourne players. Right. Clearly, they were allowed to bring bigger teams. Serena brought Alexis and Olympia and members of her team. Rafa has a bunch of guys with them. It's always men with Rafa. They have balconies. The, you know, the place if just I looks really nice. see one more picture <laughs> of Novak Djokovic evitaing himself on that balcony. Well, it's done, I guess. They're no yeah. longer... Everybody's out. Everybody's out. But, like, the balcony stuff, my God. <laughs> Naomi Osaka, very, very early on in the quarantine, posted this photo of herself and... I think it was three or four members of her team, all without masks, on the court. And this enraged people. Apparently, this picture was enough to compel the Tennis Australia authorities to encourage the elite players to stop posting on social media. Because the players in hard quarantine in Melbourne were so mad about it. And I get it. So Naomi deleted that that photo. It didn't look great. You know, when your colleagues are stuck in their hotel rooms in Melbourne and can't leave. I get it. Right. But why are they there? They are there because Tennis Australian Craig Tiley says that they needed extra accommodations. That was the impetus for this whole thing unfolding, if you are to believe him. Fine. Granted, the initial lodgings that they had secured in Melbourne, if you recall, one of the hotels was like, the people who live here in the penthouse or whatever, they don't want you here. Right. So y'all need to find some other accommodations. This was purportedly part of that. Now, let's but let's be honest about why these particular players are here. Yeah. So once Adelaide accepted that they were going to help Mr. Tiley out, they're like, well, you know, what? we're only doing this if we get something back. Allegedly. 
So uh, conveniently, the top players then just show up in Adelaide. <laughs> yeah, so Adelaide gets a little showcase for top tennis players because they don't have the tournament this year. Tennis Australia had a way to lure the top tennis players to Australia this year when they may have opted not to come. They gave them this option of bringing their family, having a a little bit more luxurious quarantine. Well, I don't know how much of their family is there. I feel like that that is an overstatement. For example, Venus was in Adelaide presumably as Serena's hitting partner. Like there were ways for them in particular to kind of skirt those more rigid rules. And then Serena's unable to bring somebody else. Right. Rafa explained that there were three separate shifts where players could be outside of the room, similar to the way it's working in Melbourne, these very complicated schedules of who can be out at what time. And he said, you know, you have five hours outside of the room total. Two hours of that is dedicated to practice. Dominic Team as well said the conditions were not totally dissimilar from the players in Melbourne. And <laughs> you can think about that however you'd like. He said it's just better because there are much fewer people around. Well, he did He did say that it's not dissimilar from those who are not in hard quarantine. Exactly. The players in Adelaide have been going on talk shows. They've been, uh, Serena was on Colbert. Rafa did ESPN Tennis Argentina. He did Christian Amanpour on CNN. And the top players are praising the quarantine rules, saying, you know, that Australia is doing an amazing job. And thank you for welcoming us to your country. And I don't know if they're they're being asked to say those things by Tennis Australia, but it certainly uh, reflects well on the organization when the top players speak like that. Listen, if, if you get Dominic Team to give an interview where something completely hyenas doesn't come falling out of his mouth, they're following directives. <laughs> Lately, yeah, yeah. Fo- Those players in Adelaide were given directives on how to handle the situation. The difference in conditions is pretty clear from an observer standpoint. Craig Tiley went the extra mile and said that quiet part out loud. And it's still baffling why he chose to say this. He said, quote, The top players do have better living conditions because they have a balcony. I get the feeling that it's perceived as preferential treatment, but they're the top players in the world. It was an advantage for us to get the additional quarantining space, and it's a great opportunity for Adelaide and they deserve it. My general rule is that if you're at the top of the game, a Grand Slam champion, it's just the nature of the business. You are going to get a better deal. Wow. We know this happens in tennis. We talk about it all the time on the show, that there are inequities built into tennis, that top players get better practice times, better court assignments, all these things, right? And it's rare to see a tennis official say that stuff out loud and not expect to be criticized about it that it's just the nature of the business, you are going to get a better deal. But Craig Tiley is the person who is giving the better deal. You know, it's not like he's just an observer in the way that tennis works to favor top players. He's actually a participant. So it was was a weird way to phrase it. Sort of took himself out of there. I think this is a, a good spot to perhaps have a capitalist critique of tennis and the situation. Oh, really? (laughs) <laughs> Did you read Capital while, while locked down? <laughs> Nadal spoke in that Spanish language interview talking about stuff that you've said on this podcast before. So, Well, I thought we were on the same page when he started talking. And then it turned out we weren't. <laughs> I mean, 
if you take what he said without the full context of it, it's the same thing. It's just that you are heading in different directions with it. Okay. Right? So at the core of it, Nadal is saying, well, tennis players, they're only really concerned with their own plot of land. Mm. Right? Nadal is saying, the tennis players see us in Adelaide and perceive us as having more, so they're going to want that. They're not concerned about the people with them currently in Melbourne who may have less, who may have like a, a shittier room. Mm-hmm. Like they only see what's what they think is is better and, and want that. And to be fair, that is what I said mm-hmm. on the last episode. I mean, when Rafa says it, it's kind of absent of a class critique, you know, because he is speaking from the top. It's also absent of self-critique. Right. <laughs> Self-awareness in that situation. Yeah. A lot of people have talked about how Rafa has been one of the consistently moderate and sensitive voices throughout the whole pandemic. And that's not just us as fans speaking. You know, he's been pretty, I would say, subdued and pensive about the whole thing and has been trying to see the forest for the trees. Now, that doesn't mean he's perfect. Some of the players, I think, feel that someone like Novak sees them better, you know, sees what they're going through a little bit more clearly than Rafa or Roger, for example. But Rafa was one of the players who went on talk shows and said, you know, these these quarantine measures are really strict, but they're important. He said to Christian Amanpour, it's normal to complain in some ways, but on the other hand, when you have a bit of a wider perspective on what's going on in the world, you have to think and say, well, okay, I'm not happy to be 14 days in my room without having a chance to practice, to go out, to do my normal preparation for a tournament. But on the other hand, you see how many people are dying around the world. You know, there's room for nuance in that perspective, right? It's not an Olympics of suffering. Because a lot of people who are not experiencing the worst of this pandemic are also suffering in some ways, and they deserve sensitivity as well. But I do kind of appreciate Rafa pulling us out of the tennis bubble a little bit, or trying to, from his perch, <laughs> from his perch in Adelaide. Just mm. uh, even though he is benefiting in some ways, which he seems to understand, that he acknowledges that these are terrible conditions for many people around the world. That is refreshing to hear from a tennis player, especially in these times. I just also think it's a little bit rich, pardon the pun, that he's telling other players, not necessarily players who are being outspoken against the quarantine rules, but just the pores of the tennis world, <laughs> that they should be happy with what they have, essentially. Right, right. Because we know that this is happening against a, a wider backdrop of inequity in tennis, of lower-ranked players not getting a piece of the pie. This doesn't necessarily apply in this situation, but the general overall feeling and angst is still there. And so I think that it, it does reflect a little bit of of a lack of, of self-awareness of his own privilege that he's able to, to issue such a blanket hush now right to, right. to, to the little folks tacked on to the absolutely needed message of we all need to to just have some perspective here about what's going on in Australia. Like there's a, a bit of a conflation of mm. the two there. Because uh, in that way, he's right. Mm-hmm. But he's speaking from a position where maybe he's not the best vessel for that message, Correct. right? And to sort of soften, maybe, and color what we said last week about players complaining, a lot of this angst, I like the word that you chose, a lot of this angst already existed because of inequalities within tennis it's amplified in this situation. 
because it's so visible. Now back to Craig Tiley for a moment. Peter Bodo, who's been writing about tennis for a million years, blasted. Is that shade? No, okay. it's not at all. Like he's he's one of the the most established tennis writers out okay, there. Okay, okay. He absolutely blasted Craig Tiley on Tennis.com this week, saying that Tiley seems quote unperturbed by the clear inequality and the criticisms from Australians, government officials, and the tennis players who are in hard quarantine. I mean, he sort of went in on every aspect (laughs) of the mistakes. He said, I have to say this quote because I was shocked. Time and again, Tylee has shown that he will let nothing get in the way of his imperial ambitions for Tennis Australia and its premier tournament. His outfit dodged a giant bullet last year during the bushfires when Tylee chose to ignore the universally embraced air quality index and pleas from players and insisted that the daily decision about whether or not to play in Melbourne Park would be based on the advice, in Tylee's own words, of meteorological and air quality experts on site. We talked about this last year, actually, that Tennis Australia frequently ignores established scientific practices yeah. as far as heat index, air quality last year with the bushfires and sort of invents their own. They've pumped so much money into the Australian Open. The tournament continues to rise in stature in part because they've branded themselves as the happy slam and as a slam that the players want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they in, in effect, are kind of like the Indian wells of Grand Slams. Right, right. And, like, the players love going there, and that becomes part of the tournament's identity. And mm-hmm. they're able to build on that. And, you know, when you have Wimbledon with the decades upon decades of history... The U.S. Open, which is branded in its own right. And then the French Open, which is unlike any of the other ones. Those those three majors Have are prestigious. They're established. They're not going anywhere. They didn't suffer from tennis players not wanting to travel for la, the majority of their careers. They don't have people questioning champions at their events because mm. th- the field was empty. You know? Right. So the Australian Open was not always this prestigious, right? It, yeah. has, it has really clawed and built its reputation among the four Grand Slams. Right. So in, so here, Bodo is saying that Tyler will stop at nothing to continue to build this tournament. He lambasted Craig Tiley. And I don't know that I personally would have gone that far, in print at least. But I like the way that he tied what's happening this year with how Tennis Australia has handled previous crises with the bushfires, with the heat index, because it it shows kind of a this uh, determination, even when it's not what players, what local Australians, what government officials believe is the right way to handle things. Sometimes going so far as endangering people. I think Bodo hinted at this in the piece that this was an opportunity for Tylee. It's almost like he saw it as an opportunity to best the French Open, to best the U.S. Open, to best Wimbledon, who couldn't even have a tournament last year. Mm. We're going to show you just how amazing we are. Now, what I didn't realize is that the Australian Open has long been underwritten and supported by the government of Victoria. So the Victorian government has actually had a hand in creating this new Australian Open as we know it. This amazing complex, the incredible fan experience, its more prestigious reputation, that has been underwritten by the government. And so this year, 
Tylee expected that the Victoria government would help pay for at least part of this enhanced quarantine, the chartered flights, the hotels, everything. But some government officials are saying publicly that that is not the case. We're not paying for this. Mm -hmm. So Tennis Australia is in kind of a pickle here, financially. What is clear, though, is that this tournament could not go off without strict adherence to government guidelines. Mm -hmm. Like this, as much as Bodo is blasting Craig Tiley here, he had to take, he had bosses for this event, essentially. Right. right. He wasn't acting like a, a lone wolf. So at the start of this quarantine thing, players are, they're unhappy. We're seeing that angst. We're seeing a lot of people behave out of pocket against the backdrop of these built-in inequalities in tennis, right? And folks are saying, where is the PTPA? Where is Novak Djokovic? And did he answer the call? And he said, here I am. From his balcony. (laughs) (laughs) Novak, uh, now you, you all know, of course, that he issued a list of requests for the quarant- on behalf of the quarantined players. Mm-hmm. They've been called demands in the in the press. And I think it's more, you know, I'm trying to take a more nuanced look at this because initially I was like, what the hell? I mean, labeling it as demands is likely sensationalism. It is. It's, it's likely also a, lie. a mischaracterization yeah. of, of what it was. These this was a list of suggestions of of asks, essentially, that Novak Djokovic Uh, sent to Tennis Australia. They were leaked, of course, and he has been absolutely roasted, raked over the coals by Australian media, by a lot of people in tennis around the world. Sam Groth, Sam Groth is everywhere on commentary, writing for newspapers. He said it was a, quote, selfish political move to gain popularity. And at first, I wasn't willing to, um, to give a fair critical look at this, and now I am. I feel like Djokovic has been maligned unfairly for this list. Now, this is to say, a lot of this list is like from another planet. And you some know? of the list was already in the works. Uh, right. So, so let's first say, what were the requests? They were fitness and training material in all rooms, decent food, according to the level of the tournament and for an elite athlete, uh, to reduce the days of isolation for the isolated players, carrying out more tests that confirm all are negative, permission to visit your coach or trainer, as long as both have passed the PCR test. If the previous proposal is greenlit, both the player and their coach should be on the same floor of their hotel. And finally, to move as many players as possible to private houses with a court to train. So piece by piece, number one and number two, the fitness equipment in all rooms and decent food, those were either already there or in the works, or or they were promised by Tennis Australia. They already had their $100 per day per diem. Sure, if you didn't like the food at the hotel, if you didn't think it was appropriate for an elite athlete, they gave you $100 per diem for food. The fitness equipment, Australia, Tennis Australia said they were sending it as quickly as possible if it hadn't arrived already. Now, the other ones, okay, so I understand in a, like in a union environment, sometimes unions request fairly ridiculous things. You shoot really, really high and you, because you know it's going to be negotiated lower. Now, this isn't a union, but it's sort of acting as one. The thing is, like, some of these are fairly ridiculous because 
they are in violation of things that all players agreed to before they came to Australia, and they're also completely out of the hands of Tennis Australia. Mm. These, this, is, this is government rules. This is why Australia has been successful at containing COVID. And with Novak as the messenger, people can easily say, wow, look at the Adria door. Look what you did there. And a less charitable view of this situation, given how strict the rules are in Australia, given what players were made aware of and chose to ignore before they got to Australia, the less charitable view is that this is grandstanding because there's no way the last few things could have been negotiated in any way, shape, or form. It was just never going to happen. Mm-hmm. I, so right. I, your view on this is going to fall somewhere along that spectrum. For example, we know Paula Badosa passed the PCR test for seven days before she tested positive in strict quarantine, right? Obviously, these things are not going to be approved. I mean, he was blasted by government officials for even suggesting it. And I think it was a bit unfair for people in tennis to say this isn't his job or or he's out of order here because, I mean, it kind of is his job, right? He feels responsible for representing players. His execution is often very sloppy. Despite his good intentions. All right. And so there's the other thing. What Every time he gets criticized, it's I have good intentions. And at some point, I feel you you have to grow up. Like this, to me, that's a childish response. And just own it. Good intentions are, they're smokescreen. They are used to obscure and deflect from what has actually taken place. I also just, I feel it's just kind of an immature response. Because even though the requests themselves were clearly going to be vetoed, the thought behind it is, it's not awful, right? He, he, I do believe that he actually felt... Uh, oh, I need to stick up for these players who, in some ways, I represent. And I'm sitting from this privileged position in Adelaide. What can I do? And so John Wertheim actually wrote about it really clearly and said, Djokovic is not a tool, as Nick Kyrgios suggests, but he is sloppy. A- and I think we see that repeatedly. No, Rafa Nadal chose violence at one point this past week. Mm-hmm. Because in his interview with... ESPN Tennis in Argentina, Nadal said, In the end, we are all trying to help each other out. That is a fact. Some have the need to make it public, the things they are trying to do to help. Some of us do it in a more private way, without having to publicize everything we do. And thank you to at Coach Dahl on Twitter for that translation. And then the interviewer was like, oh, we have this saying in Argentina, it's like so-and-so to make yourself look good. And Nadal's response, exactamente. <laughs> <laughs> that, that surprised me because it, that felt very pointed. I think it was very clear who it was aimed at. And it's been a while, I think, since Rafa offered any fodder for feuds, you know, mm. for beefs in public. Well, because if Novak is in a certain position as a member of the, of the big three, whether he is casting himself or being cast as the leader of the players, as the one who actually cares, that necessarily paints Roger and Rafa as uncaring. The opposite of that. Right. So like by, think... by default, I feel like Rafa is in a position where he feels, you know, pigeonholed. Right. And I think a, a lot of the players perceive Rafa and Roger as totally out of touch and like company men. Which I don't think there's... 
necessarily untruth in that. <laughs> that might be correct, right? Like you know, we like, don't we don't see the proceedings of the player no. council. We don't see Ruff and Rogers texts to important people. Who knows? I, they haven't been uh, particularly rebellious or revolutionary figures in tennis politics, and Novak kind of has. I just think uh, Novak he swung and missed with these proposals because a few of them were fairly ridiculous. And this is something that needed to have been dealt with way ahead of time. It can't be something that's coming out after the players are causing riots in the hotel rooms. That's too late. Yeah, yeah. I have here on the agenda that we're in for more Margaret Court mess this Australian Open. It's possible that the mess happened and no further mess will happen. Fingers (laughs) crossed. But in the last week or so, there was all this media kerfuffle surrounding Margaret Court because the government of Australia, which is a conservative government, decided that she should be celebrated on Australia Day by being awarded the Companion to the Order of Australia, the country's highest honor. And folks are like, why? Why? Why now? Like, this is an order given to people who do things for the better good of mankind. And I guess you could make the the argument that she does that with her feeding the poor, but it's certainly not what she does with her gay conversion therapy and advocating for it and telling queer people that they are decidedly less than everybody else. I just can't believe we're talking about her again. It's every year. Like, aren't you tired? I'm tired. The Victoria Premier, Daniel Andrews, who is not conservative, (laughs) he was very outspoken about this latest incident with Margaret Court saying, I'm being honest with you, I do not support that. I don't believe she has views that accord with the vast majority of people across our nation that see people, particularly from the LGBTIQ community, as equal and deserving of dignity, respect, and safety. I loved that he tacked on safety to that. Mm -hmm. Because that's really what's most at play here now. With queer people having more visibility and representation than ever in modern society, we still have queer lives endangered by people who tell them that they are less than. Mm -hmm. And this was the fear when marriage was legalized, that legal recognition for some people meant everything. And it would feel like the, the battle had been won. But that's simply not the case. I do wonder, and I, I sort of ask our Australian listeners if you feel like a tide is turning against Margaret Court. Because with this latest honor, it seems like there has been a lot more criticism, at least more reaching us in North America, from, as you said, the Premier of Victoria, also the Premier of Western Australia, from other people being honored who refuse the invitation. Craig Tiley and Tennis Australia must have been like, wow, what a moment. Dodge this bullet, don't have to deal with it. Because what's different this time is that it doesn't have to do with her tennis. It's not tethered to the Australian Open. Mm -hmm. And it's not tethered to her record as, along with Rod Laver, being the most prominent Australian tennis figure in history. A GOAT. That's undeniable. Mm -hmm. This time, it's happening outside of that realm. And that's why I think we're having all these other discussions in a different way about her this time around. Journalist Kerry O'Brien and Dr. Clara Tuck Meng Su, they both declined the order in protest of Margaret Court being honored 
in this fashion. And it's a big deal because they only give this out to a few people per year. It's very small. Hopefully, we won't have to mention her again on this show for this period mm -hmm. leading up to and the conclusion of the Australian Open. Until they rename her arena. I presume that's where we will have this rear its head again at some point in the next few weeks. But we shall see. I mean, the Melbourne Arena was renamed as John Kane Arena, right? So mm. we talk about all the time about how this is outside of the purview of Tennis Australia and that it's a government decision, that it has to do with Melbourne Park's trust. So we've seen that it can be done. I wonder if this will create some momentum toward having that happen eventually. Anyway, on to a different kind of mess, one that's more up your alley, mm -hmm. Diana Yastremska. A small update on the Yastremska affair. Since we last recorded, the ITF denied her appeal of her provisional suspension. She is now applied to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, CAS, and they have agreed to expedite her appeal. They expect a decision back in just a few days, on February 3rd, with the idea that if it were overturned, she could participate in the Australian Open. Since, you know, she took the trouble to come here on a private chartered flight, why not? They must be slow. They must not be very busy. I mean, because there's, there's decidedly less elite level sport going on in the world in the last 12 months. <laughs> yes. So I'm, I'm not surprised that a spot opened up. I was very surprised that they agreed to hear an expedited decision on this. Because the ITF has denied it twice. This stuff usually takes way longer than that. And in tennis, there is always another tournament on the horizon, right? It's not like it's the Australian Open and then there's going to be 10 months until you can make your next income. There is always another tournament. It's possible that they may have taken into consideration her work as a humanitarian with, oh with respect to race Stop. relations <laughs> and decided that she needs, she deserves mm -hmm. to have this expedited. Who knows? The CAS is the court that reduced Maria Sharapova's ban from what the ITF instituted to the 15 months. But wow, the optimism, the... I mean, I don't blame her for fighting for herself if she feels like she has a good case. We haven't heard the case publicly. No, but to take the steps to travel to Australia amidst that uncertainty after having just tested positive for COVID-19 the month prior to then hope that all these dominoes will line up in a row perfectly for them to just fall into place for her to play the Australian Open. This was, I hope, to have that kind of forward thinking confidence. And, and confidence <laughs> and optimism in my life going forward. It's a, it's a lesson for mm. us all. Listen, I, I can't see it being completely overturned. I That would be really surprising because the CAS, the ITF, the international doping authorities say that even if you accidentally ingested a banned substance, it's the athlete's responsibility for what is in their body. So they may not have taken it purposefully, which is what they ruled with Maria Sharapova, but they're still responsible. So to reduce the ban to nothing, I think would be very surprising. It's dependent on what her case is. Let's, exactly. let's see what it is. It could have been a contamination event, as she said. Nicholas Jarry, on the same subject, is actually back he was serving an 11-month doping ban for those, you remember those bespoke vitamins. It was found that he actually bore no significant fault, similar to what I was just talking about, but he still had to serve that 11 months. He's played a few singles matches in ITF and the challenger level, 
And he actually lost to the quarantine star Artem Sitak in doubles. Teammate, which is Roger Federer's management company, which was also Alexander Zverev's management company, which had kind of positioned Alexander Zverev as heir, one of the heirs to the throne. They have parted ways with Zverev. Now, Zverev released a statement on Instagram, essentially painting a picture that it was a mutual decision. That they both decided that it was a better direction for Zverev's career for his management to be family-led, for it to go back to what it was before. So I would be curious to have seen the discussions that went on internally there. Zverev got... Uh, just this softball interview from the German tabloid Bild asking about the accusations against him. And uh, it turns out that the person they've hired for crisis PR, Bella Anda, used to work for Bild. It is a bad week for people with eight-letter names. Bella Anda, Amit Naur, Mr. Anda has been on Twitter uh, since the whole crisis emerged saying some questionable things displaying a remarkable lack of sensitivity for someone who is in PR, getting into it with Ben Rothenberg, of course, saying that Olia has been, quote, dragged out into the public and exposed with her story for clicks. And so it seems that Mr. Onda is sort of making making a whole joke of Olia's accusations. Ben has told his followers on Twitter that part two of his story with Olya Sharapova is still forthcoming and that it it should arrive sometime around the Australian Open. Mm. I would just say, you know, believe what you want, but please don't be out here saying that Olya has presented zero evidence because that's not the case. I'm curious to see how this will proceed going forward when Zverev is asked by actual journalists about the situation. Mm Mm-hmm. Because to my knowledge, he's ignored most attempts to be interviewed on this matter. If it comes up in the Australian Open press room. If the ATP will try and shield him from these questions. If his management, if Mr. Anda will be working behind the scenes to have certain journalists cut off in interview rooms. Like this is something that we absolutely need to be paying attention to because Zverev's modus operandi right now is to isolate himself within the cocoon of his family and shield himself from having to deal with this in any way other than reading something off of his phone or how he found out about this in this childhood bedroom with pictures of tennis stars that he idolized growing up and how that was a crushing experience for him. This is not a grown folk adult treatment of this situation that requires a serious hand. Andy Murray will not be competing at the Australian Open this year. Shortly before he was to travel to Australia, he tested positive for COVID-19. At the time, we spoke privately and we're like, um, Andy says he's still hoping to play. Mm. Like, how, this, how, girl? How this is this going to happen? Logistically, um, from a public relations standpoint, allowing him to travel, it's just, it would just not be good. Can you imagine if that exception had been made? Yeah. And, and also medically, right? What, what if this has done something to your body and you're not fully recovered? Just take it easy. He said that he had been working behind the scenes to find some kind of alternate quarantine solution. And that eventually he just had to, to let it go. Mm. 
Carlos Bernardes was photographed being wheeled out of the hotel in a stretcher. Carlos is a, a chair umpire, a venerated chair umpire in tennis. It turns out that it's not, wasn't COVID related or anything, but he apparently had a heart attack. So best wishes to, to Mr. Bernardes, really. He's said to be doing well, for what it's worth. One of the things that we've admired since tennis went into quarantine the first time in March, for almost a year now, Chanda Rubin has been the one that A, should not be messed with on Twitter, and B, will call you out on your mess. <laughs> with precision. You know when they say you've got the right one? She's always the right one. Tennis journalist turned Twitter provocateur Christopher <laughs> Clary, who has been doing the most in the wildest ways for the last couple months, tweeted about Naomi Osaka and Serena Williams after their exhibition match in Adelaide the other day. He tweeted a picture of the both of them, and the caption was, What a difference two years and four and a half months makes. And this was after he was doing some weird thing, like tagging Serena and Federer, saying, This person won something when they were 48. What about you? Or it was, it's just like so bizarre. <laughs> right. It, the Twitter presence has gotten a little weird uh, because he is such an established journalist. He has access to all the top players. His reporting is so straightforward and factual. And uh, so the Twitter presence has been confusing to me. What is the point, what was the point of tweeting that about Serena and Naomi getting along, if not to inflame people? Like, obviously, if you've been on Twitter, you know that the army is going to come for you for that. And to our knowledge, to anybody's knowledge outside of Naomi and her immediate crew, there has never been any bad blood right. between the two about that situation. There is no beef. There is nothing that's been said publicly by either party. It's all been our own projections on the matter. Naomi, just a year ago, posted a picture of her and Serena saying, what, me and my mom? or something Me and my like tennis that? mom. Me and my yeah. tennis mom. Every step of the way for the last two and a half years, this has been, whether it's their intent or not, a public project to rebuild the image of these two women as what I, what I call the blueprint and the legacy. Right. Because... Listen, Serena Williams in her dotage, in <laughs> in her, you know, 40th year is not going to be beefing with a black female tennis star like the next one, right? She may have had her little thing with Sloan, but Serena's older. She understands what her legacy is going to be. Naomi understands how to pay homage to her predecessors and make money. <laughs> and also, it doesn't seem contrived. It seems genuine. It like does. the two of them were cackling on court in Adelaide, just having a blast mm. in that exhibition match. You know that Serena told like some corny joke that she thought was way, way right? funnier than it is. You know, and Naomi's probably like, "Is that is that a mom joke? Is that a <laughs> is that a boomer joke? I don't understand." <laughs> but here's what's happening now: we're seeing a rise, or maybe a continuation, of these white men in particular who are using black women's trauma for clicks. And so Chanda Rubin, quote, tweeted Christopher Clary with two question marks. And I can't think of many occasions where more has been said with less than those two question marks. I wish I could clear someone with two question marks, but she did. 
Clary responds with, quote, Chanda, my point was simply that their match in NYC ended in such very different circumstances. Here they are in 2021, walking off court and chatting in the most relaxed manner. Thanks. Okay. Now this is where it gets good. Chanda says, Chris, I've always respected your work, but revisiting some perceived animosity between two black women who are the face of our sport feels like bias, especially when they've had multiple classy moments like this before and since that match. This tweet does both of them a disservice. And with that, she cleared him. I felt it was very to the point, and any subtext that was in there, you could read it clearly if you were paying attention. Now enough. Enough elevating trolls. We just had the Adelaide exhibition. Started off with Novak Djokovic and Dusan Lajovic playing Yannick Sinner. Yeah, it was not Canadian doubles. It was not two-on-one. But Novak said that he was pulling out with a serious blister. And then he appeared. He just appeared. He played the second set and they they each won a set against Yannick Sinner. (laughs) That was followed by Serena Osaka, which was a lot of fun. It really was. Like, I I was not excited for tennis to be coming back. Perhaps I'm still not excited, but for that uh, that hour, I enjoyed it. It I enjoyed the levity. It was was bad. And then at some points, it was good. It was messy. I enjoyed the fans being there. I enjoyed them having enjoyment, living vicariously through them. It's no understatement that these people, these Australians, they deserve this enjoyment. Right. Like, they've put... I mean... We've put in the hard work, but, but our, as a collective... Our government and uh, our, I guess, our community members haven't done the same thing. As a collective, as a hemisphere, <laughs> right? We, we just haven't. So when you think about like, well, wow, what if we had done that? And you think about how, as simple as it is, how difficult it seems for it to, to happen, they did it. Mm-hmm. So let them, let them have their flowers, their things right now. And then I stayed up for the Nadal team affair, which was not... Not really an exhibition. Those two men were going at it for almost two hours. As usual, those two do not know how to have a hit and giggle, right? Like, <laughs> they're actually going to play a match. And it was it was good stuff. Nadal, I must say, looked in very good form. If there's anything to what, glean... Whatever that means, If there's right? anything to glean from exhibitions, like, serve looked good, forehand looked good for the most part, backhand looked good, movement looked good. We, the kit... Looked damn good. Mm-hmm. We have said this before, and then he gets straight setted by Novak. So, yeah, tennis is starting like now. Yeah, I think like, players actually right have now. just taken the court. <laughs> so what's what's next? You probably already know, but this week we have two five hundreds on the WTA side: this uh, Gippsland Trophy and the Yarra Valley Classic. They're both starting now. A day after those first two start. The Great Ocean Road Open starts, which is an ATP 250, as well as the Murray River Open. And then the following day, the ATP Cup happens. And then the following day, on February 3rd, this new Grampians Trophy, which is not a Roger Federer event. It's not, I just think of it as the Gramps the Trophy. The Grampians Trophy. <laughs> the Grampians Trophy starts on February 3rd, and that is an added-on, a tacked-on WTA 500 tournament, which will feature mostly women who were part of the hard lockdown. Right. This event was added to sort of accommodate people who had been through adverse quarantine rules who didn't have a chance. It starts a few days later. You know, it starts on Wednesday. 
February 3rd, uh, Bianca Andreescu, Azarenka, Rabakina, Sakari. Again, a, a great field. Like, you have everybody in the world here, and they're just sprinkled across three separate draws. And on the men's side, a lot of the top players are, of course, in the ATP Cup, but you you have surprisingly good draws in the 250s as well. Stan Wawrinka and Grigor Dimitrov are, uh, are headlining the Murray River Open, for example. It's a lot of... Uh, good tennis packed into a very short week. I don't know what our coverage is going to look like in the next few weeks, simply because there's so much tennis happening this next week, and then the Australian Open happens right after that. Typically, we would have done an episode to cover all this tennis that's happening because there's so much, mm-hmm. and then have a separate episode for an Australian Open like preview. Like draw preview. All that stuff. It's, it's going to be smushed together Yeah, like year. all this tennis is happening, and then the Australian Open draw is going to happen while those tournaments are still going on. And so perhaps we will do a Twitch session in conjunction with an Australian Open preview where we kind of like spread up, spread the wealth a little bit. Oh, we will? I don't know. <laughs> it might be a bit much to do two separate episodes. Oh, God. No, that, that's And it impossible. might be too much to do all in one. We'll have to see how an agenda shakes mm-hmm. out. I, You know, podcasting is my preferred medium because we have the luxury of editing. I don't... Most of the time, I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth in a given situation. And we're at home. When we're live on camera, I'm at home. Maybe I have a glass of wine. Which I'm, you do have I'm generally recording. someone with a reckless mouth. Would you say that's accurate? I'm not going to be drawn into this. <laughs> Typically, you like to blame me for all things, be it your public perception or things that I've done to you. So the fact that you're taking full ownership of this, I'm going to stay out of it. No, it's true. It's true. But... I will say, we, so we've had two Twitch Twitch uh, streams, yes. sessions, whatever they call them, so far, and I've enjoyed it way more than I expected. I generally don't love being on camera, but it, you know, we show videos, we sort of do commentary when the videos are going, and then we chat with people who are in the chat, and it's just a lot more casual than this, mm-hmm. right? If you are not on Twitter and want to be a part of or Twitch sessions going forward, because I think it's safe to say it's it's going to be part of our repertoire it is. going forward. Like, we like doing it. Don't we like doing it? Yeah. Why wouldn't we do it? <laughs> I have to say, I like it more than the Zoom sessions. Yes, I agree. That The Zoom gives me a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Like, I feel like you, I have to perform, you know? So what I'm saying here is that if, you do, if you're not on Twitter and you don't get those notifications that we, we tweet out saying, hey, we're going to be on Twitch tomorrow night, if you follow us at www.twitch.tv slash thebodyserve, you will get notifications when we go live. And it's really like you can drop in and drop out. It's yeah. not a show. You know, no. we're just sort of hanging out. and It's something that you can do from your phone. If you download the Twitch app on your phone, you don't even have to be at a, a laptop or a computer to be participating or following along. It's TBS on the go. <laughs> As of right now, you can go back and watch our, our last session that happened a week ago today. We're not Twitch partners. Apparently, you have to be a Twitch partner and meet all these criteria and pass all these thresholds before your videos then become saved forever. Right. So they're going to disappear. They're they're ephemera. Yeah. It's like Snapchat, but longer. So our first one that was a, the, about the Steffi Graf episode, it was up for two weeks. As of right now, our Twitch videos will only be archived for two weeks. For now, you can go back and watch a second one. 
And thank you to everybody who's shown up for the first two. And have chatted. Yes. The interactive part is so much fun. We've we've gotten through the entire agenda. Mm-hmm. Next time we see you, we'll actually be talking about literal tennis. Yes. We, we tried to be very quick this week, and I think we succeeded. So thank you for listening to, um, I don't know, it's like part two of the previous episode, but with a slightly more moderated tone. A little bit more optimism. <laughs> I think we've, we've seen the tennis players being freed from jail, and now everybody's happy. So hopefully folks can proceed with caution <laughs> and in good faith and good spirits and leave all that foolishness in 2020 as Aunt Dionne Warwick implored us. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at The Body Serve, on Spotify, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast app. We, as Jonathan said, are on Twitch at twitch.tv slash thebodyserve. I am James. I'm at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. There's a drag queen on this season of RuPaul's Who's Drag Race whose name is Elliot with two T's. This is crazy. I feel like uh, I should have trademarked that. You should be able to go to World of Wonder and say, copywritten, so don't copy me. Yes, cease and desist, please. Uh, you are Jonathan. I am at tennis underscore John. You did that like, uh, can we get on with it? Can we just like wrap this <laughs> I up? I didn't want to forget, you know, introducing, reintroducing <laughs> you. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.